Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. So I'm sick of being a side Indian character. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card. I'm your host, Amina Ziyad, and joining me in studio, we've got Arundhati Lakshmi. Yay! And Ahmed Yusuf. Yay! <laughs> and we've got a special guest... Celeste Little. Hello. And so before we begin, we'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet and pay respects to their elders, both past and present. This land was never ceded, and the processes of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. Joining us, we've got NTEU Indigenous Organizer and Daily Life and Freelance Columnist Celeste Little. And today we look at the brawl between Apex and Islander 23 last weekend. And our feature discussion is on gentrified schools and segregation. What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to the race card. Big up. And now we welcome Celeste Little. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Celeste. How are you going? All right, so thanks for coming on the show. The first part of the show, we usually debut, um, you know, uh, not a debut. We've had this segment for a little bit. It's called Up Close. And uh, we, we usually ask one question, no, one question, sometimes two, but this time we're just going to go easy on you. We're going to ask you one question. And the question is, would you rather have chocolate for hands or ice for feet? Um, and by the way, you got a, you got time around 30 seconds and your time starts around now. Oh, well, definitely chocolate for hands. I can't stand ever being cold. I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I really, really, um, I, I say that I am the proud descendant of the 4,000 generations of desert dwellers. So the idea of being cold is just hideous to me. Um, whereas chocolate is a very, very useful tasty <laughs> thing so yeah i you know it might get a bit slippery and soggy and all that as it goes along if it time's up thank you <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you <laughs> and i guess now we can go into the interview <laughs> a little soft thing to, to open it up um so celeste you you've been writing for a while um but how did you get into writing um i've I, I guess I've always written to a certain extent. So even when I was a little kid, I used to write stories quite often and poems when I was a teenager, you know, angsty love poems because it was hard. Um, but I started my blog, Rantings of an Aboriginal Feminist, nearly four years ago now. And um, the reason I started that, were well, there were two reasons. One was that I had just gone back to uni while I was working full time and I was doing a graduate diploma in um, arts, you know, mainly political science and um, oh, those sorts of broader gender and women's studies sort of subjects and international relations. And I had all of these ideas in my head and I wanted to channel them into some sort of written form to um, 
to thrash them out. The other part of it was that I was engaged in a lot of online feminist and Indigenous rights discussions, particularly through things like Facebook. And um, I got encouraged to get a few of those ideas out there into a blog. So I started the blog. Um, Six weeks after I started it, an editor from Daily Life contacted me and my first piece was published and so it's continued after that. So it took me literally six weeks from starting my blog to being a published freelancer and then to where I am now. Are you surprised by, I guess, that that quick transition from just the blogger on, uh, was it Blogspot? Yeah, 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 just just yeah. on Blogspot, a free it's kind of platform. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and then daily life contacting you. Are you surprised by that quick transition? Yeah, yeah, that never happens from what I hear. You know, people do get picked up from the blogosphere to write nowadays. That's not an uncommon journey, but six weeks is is very very quick. It doesn't, you know, it's rare to hear someone just start something and then being picked up like that. Um, I think the other part of the surprise for me was that I called it rantings of an Aboriginal feminist and my whole aim with that was to create an anti-media space because I perceive the media as being very white, privileged, male-dominated and so in the days of online, um, online sort of spaces, we have a lot more of a capacity to get out there and create our own little um, sections of it. So, yeah, I, I, I purposely called it Rantings of an Aboriginal Feminist because I thought no one in their right mind would be interested in the media from it. And, yeah, it was. it's still a bit of a shock to this day that it was picked up, but who knows? These things lead <laughs> to very, very strange places. Um, did that whole experience change, like your opinion about like big media do you feel like you're more open-minded to the idea of like the media as like a conglomerate no (laughs) (laughs) i um i i frequently you know i've i found a couple of good editors i found some people who are supportive of my work um but yeah i'm still incredibly critical of the media i still think that it is very much um you know, I note that daily life is a women's focused sort of area within Fairfax. Other places that have picked me up have been pretty. Um, spaces like, say, The Guardian, which is known for more leftist um, political commentary, or, you know, New Matilda were the ones who ran my keynote speech. And again, you're looking at those sorts of more more specific spaces. So the mainstream media it, it itself, I still bag out a lot and I still think it is very much about um, about maintaining the status quo and preferencing the voices of privileged white men within this country. Yeah. You, I, I remember you you talking, I think it was on Twitter a few, maybe a month and a bit ago about how you were a union organiser first yes. and a writer second. Yep. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my full-time job is National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Organiser for the NTU. Um, and I think what I mean by that sort of statement or saying I'm a unionist first is that I'm an activist first. So writing is about channeling that activism in a way that I can... That I, that I use and, you know, it's probably one of the best ways that I can actually channel my activism apart from being on the street or being on the picket lines or whatever else. Um, I've, I've 
you know, I started up my blog as that sort of space. It was about preferencing a more sort of activisty, indigenous, feminist, left wing sort of voice. So, um, I I very much see myself as you know as part of as part of the union movement as someone who was a who got into the work that I do from being a rank and file member and branch um, representative of of this particular union. So I got into this role through my activist stuff. I'm it's very much my bread and butter, and it's kind of um. It's kind of why I think that my writing is more, um, my writing is very, very much inspired by what I do full time. I actually um, want to follow through something that you said. So you mentioned that um, there were people who were trying to push you towards full time writing. Okay, this might be a little bit um, insidious, but do you think that is done intentionally to detract your activist work? Or how do you, how do you visualize that and how do you vet out um, I guess opportunities that come your way. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I know that I'm pretty overloaded with opportunities at this point in time. So, um, I, I part of me wants to think that it's due to the sort of voice that I bring to these spaces. So there's a genuine interest in what I do and an interest in fostering that. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that maybe not a lot of people see that what I do do comes from very much that sort of activist voice. And so if I, I do wonder sometimes if there is a little bit of a assimilatory sort of goal within that. <laughs> Following on that, do you feel that people are approaching you from a basis of you speaking as a spokesperson? Is that is, is that a real... Um, Thing that's happening or is that is that a fear that you have or is that a concern it's a it's a total concern um only only a couple of weeks ago I um I was in an interview I won't I won't say which one but, <laughs> I, but I I will actually say that we spoke about concepts of leadership and you know being being the lefty sort of scumbag that I am my <laughs> concepts of leadership are pretty collaborative they're pretty much the only way that I would ever be comfortable with anyone referring to me as a leader in any sort of frame was if um, Aboriginal people got together, voted, said, we <laughs> we would like to elevate you, rather than that outside appointing of leaders. So, you know, I, I've been critical of... Um, I don't I've got a bad habit recently of referring to politicians as white Australian leaders because you know they are, they're always talking about aboriginal leader this or muslim leader that or whoever else within society um I think that the the whole sort of concept around um leadership seems to be very individualistic focusing and my aim with writing was never to be the voice it was to be a voice because my my um what i'd noticed was when in, when indigenous people in the very very rare instances that indigenous people are in the media at all they're in the media in a way that's most acceptable to the status quo so my presence within it i felt was more about trying to open that up so that we could then have Aboriginal voices in the public sphere challenging each other and forcing the rest of Australia to engage with our debate. How does that make you feel, I guess, in that sense? Um, 
a lot of the time I wish that I guess people would use my work um if if I'm speaking, say, well, I was one of the things I've written a lot about is the sovereignty movement and the ideas of constitutional recognition and the critics of that. Um, so you know, it, one of the things that I would have liked the broader mainstream media to do at that point was probably to go and speak to things like the tent embassies or. Um, the various separatist movements that have operated, like the Murrawari Republic, or up, um, you know, Murumu up in up in Cape York, who's um, who's formed is um, formed with family members and other separatist community. Um, yeah, there was a real opportunity for them to grab that and say, "Oh, this is how Aboriginal people are asserting sovereignty at this point in time. We should go speak to these groups." But they never did. They continue to come back to the one person. So, yeah, I I always try and write to elevate the voices and stories of a lot of other people within the community. But I think that there seems to be this defaulting back to the one person in a way that they never do with White Australia. And talking about other platforms like being able to speak on in getting a keynote speech on International Women's Day, talk to me about that. How how were you feeling? What were the did you have nerves? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um and I gave I gave through that week, sorry, I just tripped over my phones. I gave um two keynote speeches during the week of International Women's Day and Maybe a year ago I would have been a lot more nervous than I was this year, but I was still incredibly nervous and very, very conscious of how um, how I frame stuff and how I rep- – because, you know, what both of them were most interested in in that sort of persp- – um, sorry, that sort of space – was my perspective on various issues. So it's about framing my perspective very, very clearly and ensuring that it's never taken as, I don't know, the perspective for all. Um, But, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of work to do a keynote, you know. Um, A 40-minute speech is a 6,000-word essay. It's (laughs) it's a quite, yeah, (laughs) it's quite a lot of work. And um, I was just really, really hoping that it would be well received and for the most part it seems to have been quite well received but yeah I'm glad that week's over. <laughs> um, in your speech you talked kind of a bit about like finding yourself on the political spectrum and like discovering intersectionality and things like that. Um, how did it feel I guess to like learn a new vocabulary that's kind of more academic I guess to describe your experiences? It was weird. It was really, really weird. Um, you know, I, and I think I think a fair few people listening to this will also relate too. When your lived experience has been one of colour, and it's been one, you know, one that has intersected with gender, and then you come from a working class background at the same time. That's your lived experience. That's the lens that with which you interpret life. You don't interpret it from the angle of a white dude <laughs> ever. You always interpret it from how how you've um, navigated through society, how society has reacted to you, and so the um, for me, writing from those three various perspectives is 
is pretty much as natural as breathing. I don't understand anything else. So, so it was interesting. Um, yeah, firstly being, firstly writing anything and then being hit with she's an intersectional feminist and going, what is that? I better go to the Google machine and check this <laughs> out. Um, but also too, like I said, there was that, that inadvertent link where I'm writing and, um, I, I wasn't necessarily expecting my writing to be popular with anyone. I thought maybe some other Aboriginal feminists might read it. And that was all I was expecting for an audience. Um, and the fact that not just Indigenous feminists, but the broader sort of feminist movement bought in and so did the Indigenous community. And they've been both both have been incredibly supportive all the way through. But I also said, too, that, you know, one of my biggest, quickest readerships was the anarchist communities. <laughs> and I'm just sort of, you know, reading back my work, I just sort of, oh, OK, that's probably why. I was looking and I didn't, you know, I, I started taking apart my own words and the way that I actually think about stuff. And I could see that link there, too. So it has been a learning journey about, um, I guess, about more academic understandings of, of political political worlds and knowledges um but yeah I, I like I said I I doubt that I will know every I mean I I doubt that I will ever know any different in my life I've also I've always said if I started earning thousands and thousands upon thousands of dollars per year I would still come from a very working class background and that's part of you know <laughs> That's part of me, and it's I can't shake off Indigenous or female either. That's you know that's just who I am. So that's my world perspective, and to hear it labelled was was funny. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. funny. <laughs> I mean, um, with like essentially being labelled, I guess, by more of an academic community, maybe. Did you find that like limiting or like really exciting to find like there were people who were already talking about these things, or was it just kind of freaky to realise that like people really isolated the fact that you didn't have like a white male journalist experience. I, I'm still, I, I guess I'm still trying to internally debate whether it's a, whether it's a positive thing or a limiting thing. Um, another part in the speech I spoke, I guess, um, I guess about the way that intersectionality can play out a little bit within, particularly within the feminist movement, because I think that intersectionality is mainly spoken about in the feminist movement um, as opposed to, you know, the, the Indigenous movement or um, or the class movement. It's, it's, really, it's really a topic of discussion there. And the, the whole idea with intersectionality and... Um, whether it's whether it's a really sort of radical okay we're liberating those at the bottom of the social pile and um their liberation means liberation for all versus the more sort of individualistic choice politics you know that sort of identity politics thing um yeah, I find that hard to grapple with because the way that some people come at me when it comes to intersectionality is not necessarily the way that I understand it from a lived experience um, and from from what I'm trying to achieve. And that's been interesting. Um, I think, too, that, you know, there's still 
there's still um I, I spoke about how there's less um pressure on me to be intersectional in the way that a white feminist is expected to and is discredited if she's not. So because I'm already a marginalized voice, I don't have to worry too much about that backlash. But I am also the one who needs to be included. So, you know, that whole sort of, oh, we've got five white women on this panel. We'd better chuck in some voice of colour in here, otherwise we're going to be seen this way. That's still an issue and it can continue. It, it, it's not one that goes away anytime soon. I think that... <sighs> now going to something that's probably been something very annoying to you and, and some, something very just worrying in, in, in the sense of how... Facebook has been banning you constantly um, for pictures of Indigenous women um, who happen just to be a little bit nude. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not, but even uh, we, we had a segment the other week. Um, how has how has that been going? Like how? Because I think you posted the picture. You, Matilda, posted the picture. Both of you were banned. Um, the ABC. I'm pretty sure some Fairfax papers uh, also posted the paper. I think Daily Mail as well did not get banned. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, well, just point... This, how am I doing? I'm exhausted. Um, but, yeah, point of clarification. So, so um, Dave... I'm getting all my medias mixed up. New Matilda posted a copy of the keynote you're referring to, um, the Queen Vic Women's Centre one um, from International Women's Day. And because within the context of my speech, as you all know, I referred not just to um, not just to the union movement and to the Northern Territory intervention and that, but also to um, how it was that how it was that movements have combined, how it is that through oppressions we need to be um, liberating women such as those that were that were um, subjected to things like the Northern Territory intervention and, yes, yeah, so forth, so forth. I was making those arguments within the broader context of my speech anyway, within those 6,000-odd words. Um, they, When New Matilda ran it, they chose an image, well, they chose a couple of images, so if you go through it, there's actually a couple of those images that fitted with that idea. And the image that they chose was a couple of elder women who, would get, who were performing ceremony to thank the Maritime Union of Australia for building community houses during the Unbloodwatch Watch walk-off. So the Unbloodwatch Watch walk-off was um, when the intervention came in, a bunch of people on that community packed up all their stuff moved outside of the exclusion zones that the government had set up and set up their camp out there so that they wouldn't be subjected to all of these laws. They combined, or sorry, the, the union movement in solidarity supported this community and built housing for them so that people weren't stuck living in the back of utes. And these women at a public ceremony had thanked them. So it was a fitting image for the sorts of arguments I was making. And... I posted my keynote up for for the saddos who would want to read something that big. And, yeah, the the image, the header image that went up with it led to my keynote being banned and it led to, um, it led to me being blocked from um, or receiving a 24-hour ban initially on Facebook. New Matilda also received a 24-hour ban from Facebook. Um, I... And what the ironic thing, you were mentioning a bunch of the coverage. So um, 
when I got back, when I'd served out my 24 hours, the first thing I did was post up my keynote again and received another three-day ban. I've got, um, I should be honest, on my page, I've got about three admins. They're all me because I've been <laughs> expecting attacks for a very long time. Mm. And I think, you know, it's just, yeah, I was cycling through them to keep my page open. But as well as the keynote speech, I also got, um, I also received bans on my own accounts and the one, my dummy accounts um, for posting the new Matilda coverage of the ban, even though they used a pixelated photo of these women with the ceremony. I received another ban for posting up um, my petition because I'd used the image to, um, to highlight to Facebook. It, should have been quite reasonable to highlight to them that this was not a problematic image. This was cultural and they needed to look at it in that way rather than labelling it in such an offensive way. And then I also received another ban for posting that same Daily Mail article up, which remained without problem on their page. So my page got targeted and um, Facebook not only offensively labelled these two elders doing such a sacred, you know, several millennial old um, ceremony as being nudity and sexually explicit, but they also opened up um, an entire um, system through their reporting system that allows actively for online bullying and for people to take advantage of it if they want to get certain voices off. So... Yeah, that was a battle. <laughs> That's still an ongoing battle right now. It's just uh, <laughs> Facebook. We we did a we did a segment on it last week about how Facebook and how people can just target people. Like mm-hmm. if you get like ten, fifteen people reporting the same image, doesn't matter if it's sexually uh, sexually explicit or not. Like. Yeah, didn't, didn't we heard about someone like essentially they posted like a picture of like probably like books or something, and they were like reported enough times for them to be banned for like there wasn't even nudity in it at all Mm. like and you know it's just like such a broken system it seems like it well and once you're banned um Mm. there's there's no ability to appeal it you're just sort of stuck there and Mm. you can't do anything the only reason I'm back online um technically I should still be serving out my seven-day ban right now, <laughs> um, and that ban would have ended would have ended at about ten o'clock tonight. Mm-hmm. So I would have been off off Facebook all week um, if I'd served out the ban. The only reason I'm back online is because an individual within Facebook took the move to reinstate my account because all of the media was happening around it, and with the hope that you know. Through taking that action, perhaps some things could start to die down and they could start mm-hmm. looking at, yeah. But they haven't addressed their systems. The bullying, um, the, the way that that opens up for bullying is exactly as you say. And the fact that there's no ability for people who have been targeted to actually challenge that. Um, but also, too, you know, the fact that I've had to make the argument over and over again um, from it, for me, it was um, really, really important to pursue this, although I, I admit to being annoyed that within the context of it, a speech that was 6,000 words that explained all of the issues mm, that, yeah. <laughs> that you know, like, has led to this picture mm. being removed again. So if they just read that, then they'd get a bit of a clue about what the issues were anyway. But... Um, yeah, it's it's kind of um, the fact that I'm having to argue um, from that the that 
these images are of cultural significance that we need to be celebrating mm. them that you know through the processes of colonization we've worked so hard to hold on to culture and they're not a thing of shame it's a thing it should be a thing of pride um from an indigenous perspective that's incredibly important arguing from a women's perspective too and the way that women's bodies are seen and are immediately sexualized so we can't occupy any space and um you know the way that we appear in society is is very much linked to the white male gaze and what the white male gaze deems is acceptable so these women were not just aboriginal but they were also women who were, who were um who were aged and clearly showing signs of age and proudly so. So that's, you know, yeah, it's it's kind of... um, If these pictures were of, of say, young blonde mm. women who might not have been of age and they were being exploited dreadfully within it rather than actually performing culture... I don't think that Facebook would have removed it because I've reported those sorts of images over and over again, you know, of young women being openly exploited online and have been told it doesn't, uh, I mean, it doesn't, yeah, uh, it's not an issue for its community standards yet this was. Mm. It's kind of, from from an Indigenous perspective and a feminist perspective, it needed challenging. Now, uh, lastly, what next for Celeste Little? <laughs> Well, right now I'm not crossing the Fairfax picket line, so I'm on strike. <laughs> I'm on strike right now. Um, and that, that strike ends tomorrow because Daily Life actually walked out with the newsrooms um, with Fairfax. So my next piece, which was my next column piece, which was due tomorrow, um, will now be published Hopefully on Tuesday, provided I get it done. I'm also determined that I'm not going to write before the strike <laughs> yeah. is actually up. So, you know, I'm supporting my um, my colleagues and comrades. But the next piece is going to be on the community development program that's rolling out over northern Australia and the fact that mainly Aboriginal people up to the... Um, up to I think about 80 to 90% are going to be engaged in what they're terming work for the doll programs except they're 25 hours per week for you know for most of the year um, so that's going to be my next piece it's going to be on indigenous workplace rights um, I'm also appearing at a panel um, at the Marxist conference or Marxism conference rather just around indigenous people in the media and those sorts of things um, I've still got to prepare for that, so I can't give any insight as to what I might speak at, though I think the Facebook's going to come up a bit. (laughs) And, yeah, um, it's just looking like a busy year. I've got a couple of keynotes and that, but somewhere in there, um, end of April, I'm also going on a holiday, so I'm looking forward to that. Well-deserved holiday. Yeah, yeah. It's been a very busy start to the year. (laughs) I just Mm -hmm. haven't – I didn't anticipate that my year would get quite this hectic so quickly. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. My pleasure. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. And hopefully everything, you know, settles down and you're able to have that holiday and have yeah. Your and, back. and have your Facebook <laughs> back. You know? Oh jeez. That'd be nice. It'd be nice. I can't wait. <laughs> Tony Abbott was really never a deeply popular figure among the electorate. Yes. Tony Abbott faced some hostility of his own. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Oh, really? 
and uh, really the reason why his prime ministership has crumbled is because he lost the support of the electorate and ultimately the governing Liberal Party. Uh, this is not an easy so, day for uh, many people in this building. Leadership changes are never easy for our country. The, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. The, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. Uh, my pledge today is to make this change as easy as I can. Now we're going to the segment, The Week That Was, where we highlight some of the most notable or infamous stories from the past week. The police and media portrayed Apex as a gang of 150 um, young men, when in actuality, the South Sudanese community released a, media, uh, a statement saying that it was actually six to ten teenagers involved, actually around the age of 14, and they don't condone any of the violence. And the fact that this has happened has actually um, demonized their ethnicity. And to borrow some of their statements, this is a significant damage to our ethnic, ethnic identity. Time over and time over, we suffer this endless game of blaming our ethnicity. And true enough, in the commentary that ensued, a lot of it was composed of mainly xenophobic drivel or diatribe. Um, there was no mention of how gang violence can be curbed, no mention of how some of these teenagers who are 14 years old f perhaps were navigating a white world, a white Western world, where they felt isolated, um, excluded, and one way to take out that frustration was perhaps to join these gangs as a means of seeking belonging and as a means of seeking validation. There was no mention of masculinity that, that played into all of this, the way how men of color were racialized um, for both Apex and um, Alan, Alander 23. Um, as, a, as, a, as a result, the media just reduced their violence or their, you know, their misdemeanors to the fact that they were South Sudanese and the fact that they were Islander people, um, only to spur xenophobia. And of course, other incidents ensued, such as the misuse of the photographs by the project and um, the good migrant narrative from Deng Adut. And to borrow some of these words from an ABC interview, they're just too trauma traumatized to adjust, and somehow the best way to help them is actually consider deporting them, um, consider deporting most of these kids that there are to cause problems for themselves, their parents, and the community at large, and wider Australian community. What is interesting in that is that that statement does not also consider the fact that these young boys faced um, immense exclusion and immense, um, perhaps, uh, eagerness to find belonging Oh, definitely, because I can't imagine how it must feel to be a young fourteen-year-old boy living in, in, in like living in a foreign country. Mm. A lot of these boys might be at best first generation, um, with still the trauma of 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 of, of years of, of war-torn countries coming from from and, and not knowing where home is, and like. I know, like, just seeing, like, our, my dad w was a refugee. He was a child soldier. He came from a background like that. And, you know, like, sometimes when I talk to him, I can see it in his eyes how, you know, that pain that still stays to this day, you know. And he's 53 years old. 
how must that feel to be a 14-year-old boy? How must that feel to be someone who's forming your identity? How must that feel to be someone who, you know, is still trying to adjust to a new place? Mm. I, I don't know. It's just like, and it, it's not it's not like Australia as like a wilder cult, wider culture makes it any easier. I mean, you know, there's a rally going on right now as we record this to like welcome refugees because we have, you know, such a bad sort of stance on that. And like living here and knowing that's happening, that you're, you know, people like you can't come in. It just. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Must be so alienating. And it's just like basically right now is just white Australia policy changed in different language to make it sound more palatable and... and rhetoric like this done by media organizations huge media organizations just seek to to kind of continue that hysteria mm. that is attached to foreignness that is attached to people that look different that is attached to people you'd think that den adult who i'm i'm like really disappointed about what he said to basically say these boys should be deported is to just you know is is just to disregard their humanity you know really it is to disregard their humanity because you're like Let's just let's not think about their mental health state. Let's not think about their well-being. Let's just throw them away. And even you know, murderers don't get that. They they don't get deported. Mm. But people who have killed people get sent to jail. Get sent to this idea of rehabilitation. People who have committed crimes of mass, like like of high levels of 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 crime, are sent to prison in the guise of rehabilitation. Whereas these young boys are being told they should be deported I've been in all rap this year at the awards yeah don't get me wrong I love hip hop obviously but tonight it's all about soul okay hold on a second I got another call wait a minute No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and they name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. Yeah, I got on my overalls. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to send an Uber for you right now. Yeah, come on, be outside. Now we're moving on to our feature, which is on segregation in schools. The schools mentioned in the story have been censored. 
Arunati has a story. So a lot of people say you can't be born racist. It's something you learn to be through just existing in places where your biases against people can never be challenged. But for many Australian kids, they're never put in environments where they can have their biases challenged. Most children in Australia either go to schools dominated by people of colour or they go to schools with a very high white, specifically Anglo population. I feel like in the back of my mind, I always knew this was something that happened. It was just like a fact of life or something. But I never really thought to interrogate it further until I looked at the work of academic Christina Ho. Hello, Chris speaking. Hi, Chris. Um, this is Arundhati from the Race Card. I was just wondering if you were Hi, playing. Arundhati. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Christina studies education and segregation in Australia, and she works at the University of Technology in Sydney. And she looks at also how the trend of more and more choice with schools and how we pick them creates more segregation between white students and students of colour, contrary to all the multicultural policy we've been hearing about. It started with a personal observation just of schools in my suburb, in my like actually local neighbourhood, where I just noticed that uh, two schools within walking distance of each other were just growing more and more further apart in terms of their um, cultural sort of makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, they were both they both were quite similar, you know, like maybe ten years ago, and then over the years. And I guess because I, I had a, a young, I had a young child who was starting school in one of these schools, so it was very um, confronting to realise that she was going to a school where there were a lot of um, people from um, migrant backgrounds, um, which is very much in, in keeping with our suburb. And then there was a school down the road that that had very few people from migrant backgrounds, and I started to think, oh, this is happening in just one suburb, and um, I sort of looked around and realised that it was happening a lot in a lot of places. Hello. Hey, Chanel. Ah, hi. <laughs> hi, how are you going? I'm good, Diggy. How about you? I'm good. I'm looking at your school statistics. Yeah, what's it like? I, I can't read. I'm reading it right now. I'm like, uh, what does this mean? You have 82% of students come from a language background other than English. Am I? Yeah, that's like tons, by the way. Like my school yeah, had thirty-five. Right? Yeah, eighty-two percent. Oh my god, thirty-five. Yeah, we have so many bright. Yeah, like, but I even like people of color who don't who only speak English at home are not included in that as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. This is Chanel. I wanted to talk to her a bit about why she chose her school. I guess like when your parents decided we need to send Chanel to a school. Did they have any other schools in mind, or was this like the first choice? Um, I think it was the first. Cho- I mean, I I went to. I was gonna consider another school, but oh, <laughs> I felt like I didn't belong. Also, there was like a lot of white people, so maybe that's why I w- I was like, um, I'm just gonna go to the school where like all my primary school friends are going, and also there is a lot of you know people of color who attend this school. So yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. Was like you said, you didn't feel comfortable there. Like, what what did your parents think? Um, my parents didn't really have a say. <laughs> like, it was ultimately up to me. Like, they were. I felt. I think they just felt like, oh, now we have to drop you to this school that's further away, rather than you walking to that school. I just, I just knew that I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable, and it felt like if I, you know, oh, like, which is a funny story, because I had a friend who went to that school, right, hmm. and all her friends were white. She was like, when she came to my school, she was like, oh, you're my first Asian friend, and she's Asian. 
Whoa. Be, we, yeah, right? So, like, lucky I chose the right school. <laughs> wow. So she would have been, yeah. like, like everyone in that school's only Asian friend. Yeah. Yeah, basically. So there was, like, a so there's, like, two schools in your area. I mean, like, there's probably more than two. That's silly. But they're, like... But there's still like a racial contrast between yeah, people I don't know that why. are in like the same cashment. Why do you yeah, think maybe... that is? <laughs> <laughs> why do I think that is? Um, I'm not sure. Maybe just because of the particular like neighborhood suburb I'm in, it's more like there's still people of color, but I feel like I don't know. Maybe maybe it costs. A l- I don't know. Maybe the houses. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, at this point, I was just as confused as Chanel. I didn't know how um, a white population could just pick a school in a place with a high migrant population and just have it and completely monopolise it. So I put it to Christina. There are some who um, are are so committed to it that they will send their kids to these very, very diverse schools. Mm. Uh, And then the dynamics, as you say, become, well, um, how do they then interrelate with people in that school? And there is a lot of... um, sort of scholarly research around the world that shows that if you're very well educated and you're, you know, articulate and you're confident and you're a native English speaker, et cetera, et cetera, then uh, you're naturally going to have a lot more, uh, well, you're going to make them make more of the opportunities to get involved in a school community. And so, you know, for instance, we've spoken to a lot of parents who've talked about things like parents and citizens meetings. Mm. So who turns up at PNC meetings? You know, it does tend to be those, you know, professional yeah. white middle class people who they're used to going to meetings like they did at work. And mm. <laughs> so, um, on the other hand, um, there are people who maybe don't have very good English and mm. maybe they don't even understand what is a meeting agenda? You know, mm. what does an agenda mean? You know, they're just not very familiar with that kind of format. And so it's sort of natural that then the the more advantaged, you know, white people will start to take over things. You know, yeah. they will start to decide, oh, well, what fundraisers should we be doing and, you know, what should we be trying to um, improve in the school? And they'll see it from their perspective, which mm-hmm. is, you know, of course that's going to happen. And that can really change the dynamic in a school as a school becomes gentrified. Um, and, for instance, you know, parents and citizens meetings become dominated by gentrifiers who are tending to be, you know, professional white middle-class people, um, it can mean the marginalisation of um, the more disadvantaged people. So the PTA seems to be the major way how white people can monopolise schools. So I asked Chanel uh, whether her parents knew anything about the PTA. Are your parents, like, at all, like, associated with the Parent Teachers Association? No. Oh, why do you think that is? Is that is that what... Is it... Does that stand for PTA? Yeah, that's PTA. That's cool. what PTA stands for. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Simpsons PTA episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I parents teachers association maybe because I felt like it didn't apply to them or mm. something. I don't know. Is I don't know anyone who's a part of the parent teachers association. I don't know if that's something a lot of like non-white parents see themselves being a part of. Maybe just from where I'm from, but maybe that yeah basically. I don't know, maybe they're too busy working to be part of the association or something, you know, working class. The ways in which Anglo-Australians justify this isn't surprising. There's the usual rhetoric. 
most people, if you ask them, would never say, oh, well, you know, I'm avoiding, you know, (laughs) migrants Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, or, you know, I'm avoiding a certain cultural group. I mean, when you, in my research, when I've talked to people, there's all sorts of reasons that they put forward about why they might not choose to go to their local school. So um, I think race and class are very intertwined in that. So there are ways that people say um, talk about race and class without actually talking about it. So (laughs) people will say things like, oh, well, I just feel like it's a very rough school. You know, that word Mm -hmm. rough gets used a lot. And that is not just about ethnicity, but it's a combination of ethnicity and class. So by that, they think that there are kids who are, you know, from perhaps more disadvantaged backgrounds. People will say also things like, well, I don't want my child to... um, to be in a classroom where there's a lot of disruptive kids. And again, the disruptive kids, you know, what they might mean by that are people who are from more disadvantaged backgrounds or maybe people who um, are recent migrants to Australia so they don't speak English and Mm -hmm. so they need more assistance and all these things will disrupt the class and they're worried about, you know, the learning experience for their kids. That's the way that people often talk about it and what, what it sort of often boils down to uh, you know, people from a different cultural or socioeconomic um, background to themselves. Stuff. So the problem is rough kids and resources, but there's something that's a little bit more new to the way white people justify racism in schools. There's also, interestingly, the, at the opposite extreme, people are avoiding um, the kind of high-achieving, you know, Asian migrants. Yeah. Who are, not because they don't speak English, but because they're just too good at everything. Mm-hmm. And um, they're too competitive and, you know, their parents are too pushy and, you know, we don't want our children mixing with families like that. So it's kind of at the at the sort of bottom end and at the top end, yeah. there is this kind of logic of avoidance going on. Jane went to a public selective school in Melbourne and worked really hard to get there, but she's also really, really talented, if you ask me. So you really enjoyed, like, being um, at your school, your selective school, because, like, I mean, was there, like, a sense of solidarity because you'd all kind of been through a very similar thing with, like, the coaching process and, like, you know, you all had, like, similar family expectations, at least, with regards to, like, how high you achieved? I think, yeah, everyone knew that they had to undergo, you know, very similar processes mm-hmm. um, in order to get to the school. Um, everyone was kind of like first generation or second generation migrants as well. So yeah. they have you know, different cultural nuances um, that they have to adhere, adhere to um, throughout their like high school life and things. So we can just talk about it and complain about how our parents are saying X, Y, Z together, which <laughs> yeah. is kind of nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what I find really interesting is that kind of more, because most people, had to go through like you know they had to go through what my old maths teacher used to call hyper tutoring which I (laughs) uh, it's just ridiculous um they we kind of like have this solidarity of like hidden envy towards people who don't have to um don't have to actually go through that process like the coaching process and Mm -hmm. still got in because we thought oh they had natural talent so on and so forth what about us like we're we're probably not good enough we're not smart enough we only got here because we got tutored so on and so forth it was sort of like a hidden like understanding amongst most students that you know not every like although they work hard they weren't all smart like they they weren't all good enough to naturally enter the school Mm -hmm. and I think that like that created a lot of self-esteem issues yeah. um, in people, especially because we had one teacher, um, you know, a few teachers really have this sense of disdain towards the tutoring culture mm-hmm. um, at 
um, at my school. I remember having a maths teacher who was complaining about, you know, students who are hyper tutored. So no one who went into my school actually had natural talent or very oh. little. Of and that was I, like that was a large thing, I think, for a lot of people. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I suppose the idea of like constructed like giftedness, I don't know. I feel that perhaps if you got into my um, without having to go through those tutoring thing, you might have, you know, you might kind of think of yourself as a bit better than everyone else. On. Yeah. But mm. yeah, it's it, so that's com- something that like a lot of a lot of us had to grapple with, like whether we're actually like smart or not, or whether our position there was like legitimized, even though we like you know had to tutor. So yeah, it's it was a bit weird. Okay, so after listening to that, I I just thought, one, it was really disheartening that this kind of rhetoric about how giftedness has to be innate and you can't, you know, have any sort of help to reach that level um, was sad because, you know, um, Jane obviously, you know, felt like it was almost directed at her. I was just wondering what you guys thought about, like, this no- notion of giftedness and it being racialized. Like, for me, I remember going to tutoring for English, tutoring for, for maths, and, like, I write, a, I, I, like I, I like to think of myself as a writer, mm. but growing up, I was never great at writing. Yeah. I was, I, like, writing was very hard. Mm. So learning how to write and, and practicing writing and getting help from, from people just seemed like the sensible thing to do to cultivate that. You know what I mean? To, even with anything in life, to cultivate um, a talent you need you need to nurture it, and for me, tutoring and this concept of super tutoring, whatever the, whatever the hell that is, is helping children and, and and young people to cultivate their talent so they can they can actually go and do it because no one is born with an inherent gift. Mm. Even like like the best example I remember everyone saying talking about Einstein for example, like everyone thought Einstein was wasn't very smart. You know, people didn't think he was. He had the aptitude to to be studious. Mm. Um, he proved them wrong. <laughs> yeah, and also this idea that you need to prove your worthiness mm. of being gifted at a particular age. I mean, some people maybe they're just slow at learning. Maybe the teacher is just isn't that great for them. You know, maybe the learning method is not suitable for them. And so this idea of an innate talent is erasing the vast diversity of the way people learn, mm. the way how children learn, the way how people um, interact with each other, interact with concepts, and the way how, you know... And also this idea of, of giftedness needs to be deconstructed, yeah. right? So I borrowed um, a definition Um, from Guadalupe Valdez in her book um, published in 2003, Expanding Definitions of Giftedness. She uses um, the U.S. Department of Education, um, the definition of of giftedness and gifted children. Children and youth with outstanding talent perform or show the potential for performing at remarkable high levels of accomplishment when compared with others of their age, experience, or environment. These children and youth exhibit high performance capacity in intellectual, creative, and or artistic areas and unusual leadership capacity or excel in specific academic fields. They require services or activities not ordinarily provided by schools. Outstanding talents are present in children and youth from all cultural groups across all economic strata and in all areas of human endeavor. Which is interesting Mm -hmm. because in a separate research, um, 
we've just conducted an inner city New York City. Sorry, this is so US-centric. But whatever, but that's this where no, the data yeah, there's is. There's no from. data here. So, um, <laughs> in spite of you know a lot of these inner city um, New York schools, or sorry, from ten cities, not just New York. Yeah. Um, seven out of the out of ten students are black and Latino. Mm. But when you go to gifted or selected schools, they only represent three out of ten. Yeah. And so there's this particular thing happening here. What the fa- even though you say that talent can be seen in in various um, strata of people, the fact that overwhel- overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelmingly, they are white speaks of this innateness. Yeah. This innateness basically means accessibility. Mm. So basically, like when we talk about. Um like white kids having sort of a natural, not natural, like they already have these resources that can allow them to get into these schools. A lot of the kids, white kids who get into these schools who um, don't get tutored go to very elite private schools. And that's like a whole other like list of issues. Within these elite private schools, because there's not many people of colour, white people learn new ways to interact with non-white people. I was just wondering... um I was speaking to some people who did go to selective schools and they were talking about, I guess, the white flight from those areas. How does that affect kids in selective schools, really? Does it, like, have any effect on them? Like, just the fact that they're, like, there's, like, a 92% language other than English-speaking population? Or is it, like, does it just keep the school, like, with high achievers? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because um, from the people I've talked to, on the one hand, there are people who... Um, go to the selective schools and it's just normal that there mm. are people, that there are high achievers and they're often from Asian backgrounds and that's just something that is, you know, perfectly normal. They don't bat an eyelid. Um, in, other, in other sort of instances, I think there is a bit of racial tension um, mm. from, um, well, I've, I've spoken to some Anglo-Australian families who uh, have been involved with selective schools who are certainly quite negative about the dominance of the Asian Uh, high achievers because they feel that these people have only gotten into the school because of their pushy parents, their tiger mothers, etc. You know, that they've been coached. Um, So they're not not necessarily naturally gifted. um, And, you know, I think we need to also look at what that means, the notion Mm. of giftedness. Um, But so the idea is, the stereotype is, you know, you have these poor kids of Asian migrants who are pushed from primary school to study, 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 and they don't get any childhood. And some people will say it's almost child abuse. Um, and these are the people that get into selective schools at the expense of people who might be, quote, unquote, naturally yeah. gifted but haven't been trained. And so they're missing out. I think there's a lot of tension around that issue that sometimes um, can, you know, really... Um, can really shape how people will interrelate within the schools. I guess, um, what do you think about the notion of giftedness? Like, I think some, like, in like in the sense that we're talking about it now, it really does seem like racialized that only, like, the only gifted kids are the ones that, like, aren't from Asian backgrounds or, like, don't have any sort of, like, coaching. I guess, do you think it's a racialized term now? I think it actually has become quite mm-hmm. racialized because, um, the people who usually make this argument are typically Anglo-Australian people who don't necessarily believe in private tutoring. Mm. They think that kids um, who are naturally gifted don't need to cram to pass the test and that if you need to cram to pass the test, you shouldn't be there. Um, and I think I think we really need to think about what the notion of giftedness means because certainly if you speak to some Asian Australian students and families, they'll say, well, nobody is born 
uh, with amazing mathematical skills. You know, mm -hmm. like everyone has to work hard to get to these places and why aren't we deserving of a place if we've studied hard? Um, so it's quite a, it's quite a, it's quite a contrast, I think, in how people view ability. Um, like, mm -hmm. is it something that you're born with or is it something that you work at and become good at? And I think the notion of giftedness has tended to be interpreted by some people as, you know, it has to be something that is innate within you yeah. um, and that is only measured by things like IQ tests. But yeah. then IQ tests have been also been very critiqued, you know, by people in that field because, you know, nothing is an objective test of exactly. intelligence. You know, like the IQ test also assumes that you're familiar with certain culturally specific ways of viewing the world. Um, so even very abstract logical um, puzzles or problems, they also reflect your uh, familiarity with a certain kind of way of thinking about things. So, you know, like if you've been raised in a, in a, um, say a middle class Anglo Anglo Australian family where you're familiar with that kind of way of thinking about the world, then you'll do well in an IQ test. Maybe maybe an IQ test wouldn't be so great in for people from other cultural backgrounds. Mm. So it's really fraught. I mean, obviously, you know, there are differing levels of intelligence, but how do you how do you act on that and try and to sort of separate kids based on some um, artificial measure? You know, yeah. every measure of intelligence is going to be somewhat artificial, mm. and I think that we've put a lot of um, we've put all our sort of you know money into one way of measuring it, which um, has a lot of problems. I've done like research on your school in terms of statistics and stuff. Oh my god, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so like I feel like some like I didn't realize like how bad it was because I compared my school to your school, my school has 30% language other than English speaking backgrounds. It's not great. It's not like reflected in the school. Like, yeah. It doesn't feel like there's that many people. Cause like, there's like, you know, people like separate into groups and stuff. And that's like fine. Yeah, but, like, yeah, it doesn't yeah. feel integrated at all. Your school is much worse. You have 4% oh God, of people, 4% of people are from oh. a language other than English background. Holy shit. Yeah. Game changer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was James. He went to an elite private boys' school in Torak, but he's not white. It's probably not surprising that the population of Lot or language other than English students was so low in James's school. So what happens in these schools and how do they interact with communities of colour? I asked Christina. Um, well, so there are a lot of private, like really elite private schools, yeah. high fee paying prestigious schools in, mm -hmm. you know, wealthy suburbs in, in Sydney and other, and other cities that are, um, you know, say 90% Anglo or, or more. Yeah. There are some schools that have virtually no people from migrant backgrounds. Um, and I think that those schools are extremely artificial environments. You know, that is not contemporary Australia. No. It's not the globalized world that we live in. You know, like these people are living in a bubble. Um, and although they may, um, often you'll hear that these schools say, oh, well, we send the kids to Cambodia to look after <laughs> orphanages yeah. and yeah, you know, yeah. things like this. Or, and so the way that they interrelate with people who are culturally different, mm. it's almost like they're providing charity. Yeah. And I just think that's a very unhealthy way of thinking about <laughs> others. Yeah. So, you know, they're always going to be the ones who are doing someone else a favor. Mm. Um, and they don't have that practical everyday experience of having to deal with someone who's culturally different. I think the only way that you really develop those genuine cross-cultural, you know, skills 
communication skills and understanding and empathy is by everyday interaction, not, you know, going on some exchange program, not, you know, learning about, um, you know, humanitarian aid or something, you know, yeah, in the classroom. Yeah. It has to be something that you do every day and that's normal. That's like the beauty of Australian multiculturalism mm. is that we are most of us in the cities at least um, and, in, and in other areas, like we're, we're just, naturally deal with people from all sorts of different backgrounds in our everyday lives and it's not a big deal that's the beauty of it like it's not a big deal and we just learn naturally to negotiate with people to understand to learn about different you know ways of thinking about the world and if you go to a school and you're socialized from such a young age to think that you know a natural environment consists of everyone who looks exactly the same as you mm. i just think that you're really missing out on a very valuable opportunity so you essentially set up these racial power dynamics that manifest through how the school is run, but they also affect the kids themselves. Yeah, it was really weird because, like, I am white passing and didn't really feel that excluded for most of it. However, until, like, when people kind of found out that I was a person of colour in, like, year 10, I don't know, there was, like, maybe three years where people just, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but, yeah, I, I don't know, it was very closed off. You get... You definitely get the um, culture of like, oh, haha, Asians love doing their homework. And like, oh, like, dad's going to get angry at you. Like, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Or like, oh, the Asian kids are the bad at sport compared to us. Like, oh, they don't play rugby, blah, blah, blah. They just like to play badminton. It was very much of like that kind of um, racist culture that I was brought up in around. And again, like, when I grew up in that, I kind of felt like it was normal. And I was sort of being like younger and kind of wishing that I wasn't Asian. Oh. Like, oh, like, damn, I wish I was just like, one of the white kids. I feel weird telling people that I'm Filipino until I got older and like became more proud of my um cultural background. But um, I don't know. Yeah, it was it just it felt very weird. It like was very close. I was very segregated. And even like they'd make it a thing if like the white guys were friends with like someone who was like a person of color. It was just like a like they'd always make fun of their background. Like oh. they weren't just like friends based off like regularly being friends, but like you'd hear them and like their jokes would kind of revolve around the fact that they were, like, not white. Mm. So we've got kids in migrant-dominated schools that aren't selective, that receive less funding, students of colour that are constantly doubting their talent in selective schools, and generally an extremely unhealthy amount of racism breeding in elite private schools. So what's the solution to this? It seems that we need less school choice accompanied by a levelling of the playing field. Well, I think that um, in in Australia, because of the um, policy of school choice, you mm. know, which governments have been pushing, you know, they're encouraging parents to shop around for schools. Mm. They've created this marketplace where you know schools are in competition with each other, and there are you know on the my school website, everyone's looking at things like NAPLAN scores, mm. and so schools are trying to differentiate themselves in this marketplace, and that actually encourages more division and polarization. Yeah. Um, it's almost the opposite of attempts to integrate schools, it is driving schools apart. So I think that in, in Australia, um, and this is really kind of part of the whole neoliberal kind of package, really, yeah, but yeah. Um, that's really, you know, we see that in all sorts of policy areas. It's about mm. increasing competition and increasing choice. 
Um, and that's great if you are in a position to choose. Yeah. You know, if you are a, an educated person and you understand how to do research about different schools and you have those kinds of resources um, to find out and, you know, to visit all the schools, etc., then, it, you know, you're in a great position to choose. But not everybody has the same capacity to choose, mm. you know. So uh, there's a lot of evidence that if you're from a poor background or if you're a recent migrant um, who doesn't speak very good English, you don't have those resources to choose and you're much more likely to just send your kids to the local school where they can walk to school easily. Uh, so choice becomes irrelevant and I think that's what drives that segregation. So yeah. it's the educated middle-class people who are moving around, bypassing their local school and then some schools become uh, so-called residualized. You know, they're left yeah. with the residual of people who, you know, they don't have the resources to choose. So um, that that's really what is driving schools apart in my opinion it's mm -hmm. like the logical outcome of policy that emphasizes competition and choice yeah so there's a very i mean in my mind there's um if we sort of roll some of that stuff back then we will also be addressing segregation mm. if um if there was stronger emphasis on you know uh, well, first of all, funding all schools so that you know every every local school was offering something really great, then there wouldn't be such inequality and people wouldn't have to obsess about you know this school or that school because every school in our country would be great. Like you know, it's not impossible to do that. We have Australia is a very wealthy country. We shouldn't have any school that people feel like oh I'm going to avoid that one because you know it just doesn't do so well. You know we shouldn't have schools in that situation. Mm. So after that, it seems the solution is that the government's got it wrong and we shouldn't be marketizing everything. Uh, like Christina said, Australia has like the biggest marketplace of schools, probably like out of like a lot of probably in the world. I mean, in the US doesn't even have this kind of like capital market of schools like zoning is, you know, it's really important there. So why is it different here? I'm not really sure. What? How would you guys feel if you had less choice in choosing schools? Like, so like, like Christina said, unless there is a blanket thing, a blanket amount of money each school gets. But even that, like giving more money to, to schools with lower socioeconomic status is, is what I think should happen. Yeah. And also stop funding private schools. <laughs> yes. Just stop it. Like Xavier College or um, Ivanhoe Grammar or whatever these schools are, whatever schools they are. My... Turak, schools in Turak, they don't need government funding. They're fine. Oh, yeah. I went to a private school, so I'll put it out there. Um, I went to a... Uh, since I left, my school has received a 40% increase in funding. And that's the highest increase out of every single school in Victoria. It doesn't need the increase. I guess, like, it just really seems to be... I, like, agree with Christina in that the only way that zoning can work is if, like, all schools have parity. Um, and the private school system, the way it's set up, <sighs> private schools don't need dessert. Thanks for that story, Erin. Uh, it was <laughs> really, really interesting. And, like, I'm pretty sure people didn't think there was such a problem with gentrification in schools or segregation in schools because a lot of people think, oh, that's that's American-centric, mm. that's that's in the UK or Canada or whatever, and never think about it in an yeah. Australian context. I think the interesting thing is people don't think about it in Australia because for a long time, segregation hasn't been written in law. But that doesn't mean we have to ignore it because it manifests in every single school in Australia and 
we can't we can't just turn a blind eye. Exactly. Just because it's not written in law doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah. And that's our show for this week. Hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget you can find our podcast a number of ways. You can find us on iTunes searching Racecard, same as on Acast, search us on Racecard. Find us on Twitter race at Racecard Pod. You can find us on Tumblr. Thanks to Arundhati's Tumblr skills, racecardpodcast.tumblr.com. And you can find me, uh, Ahmed Yusuf Ten. I think they can find both of you as well. Where can they find you? Oh, well, they can find me, Amina, A M E N A Ziard, Z I A R D. No spaces, no capitals, just search me. Um, you can find me at A. A R U N D H A T H I. Yeah, there's two A's at the front. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, I forgot you can find us on Facebook as well. Facebook.com forward slash race card show. Remember, you can send us a review, Woo! rate us on iTunes. Yeah. You want to see us jump on those charts? Thank you so much. And uh, that's bye from me. Bye. Thank you for listening. And I guess. Now we welcome Celeste Liddell. Little. Oh, shit. <laughs> Never mind. I'm going to say it again. Uh, I knew that would happen. <laughs>